If you are visiting with us, again, we do welcome you. Uh, we have been working through the book of 1 Corinthians verse by verse, and this morning we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 at the very beginning of that chapter. So if you have a Bible and would like to join us there, it will be 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we will be looking at the first uh, six verses. The title of my sermon this morning is Do Not Be Overthrown, and our keywords for the worshipers in training are wilderness, rock, and spiritual. We're actually going to read a little bit before and a little bit after our text this morning so we can get the full context of what Paul is writing about. So we will begin our reading in chapter 9, verse 24. 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness." Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation He will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So Paul is taking this exhortation, and it is tied to this larger argument that we've been walking through from chapter 8 all the way through, we'll see, the end of chapter 10, regarding Christian liberty. If you remember the Corinthian church, the Corinthian believers were saying, we're saved, we're baptized, we are instructed, so we're mature in Christ. We're gifted. We've seen a lot, we've done a lot, we've been around a lot. And so we're free. We're free in Christ. We're okay. So... Meat sacrificed to idols? No problem. Idol worship at celebrations that we go to? No big deal. We're Christians, and as Christians, we're free in Christ. 
We're under the gra- under grace of God, not the law. And so all things are permissible. All things are lawful. And so in these chapters, Paul says, hold on a minute. It may, may be permissible, but is it profitable? It may be lawful, but is this something that you're enslaved to? Furthermore, what about your weaker brother? Have you considered him? He was, he was just saved out of idol worship, and you're going to eat meat offered to an idol in his presence? You may very well be free to partake, but your brother's former association will cause him to stumble when he sees you do that. Consider the man. Consider his conscience. Consider his weakness. And don't open yourself to be the reason for his temptation and his compromise of conscience and faith. And so this has been Paul's argument through these chapters. And the Corinthians had assumed that they had sort of arrived as believers. They were unfazed or untempted or unmoved by sin going on around them. And Paul is saying, hold on a second. You you think that you've reached the finish line? (laughs) No, friends, you've hardly even started. You've hardly begun. We see in verse 27, he speaks of himself in chapter 9, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So Paul even puts himself in this category and says, I could be doing this apostle thing and not discipline myself and not bring my body into subjection by simply misusing my liberties and as a result, disqualify myself. I can run my liberty out to where I'm flirting with the fine line and fall into temptation and become disqualified from serving for the sake of Christ Jesus. Many Christians have said, it's no biggie. It's my liberty, it's my freedom, so no big deal. And as a result, they have fallen and become disqualified. Perhaps most of us, if not all of us, can think of Christians we have known in our lives who have taken full advantage of their liberties and as a result have not taken heed to their weakness and have fallen as a result. So he tells them through these chapters You cannot run down all of your liberties without considering these things. First, is it profitable? Are you enslaved to it? Are you considering your weaker brother? And are you in danger of sin yourself that you might be disqualified? And so now we get into chapter 10 where Paul says, let me give you an example now. Let me give you an example of following, falling into sin and being disqualified. Let me give you an example that you will be familiar with because obviously, Corinthians, you're not thinking about this. 
You just continue to run on in these things without considering the fact that you are in danger here. So he begins by saying, I want you to know, or your version might say, I do not want you to be ignorant, brothers. And sort of the the linchpin to his entire argument here is verse 12, which we're really going to cover next week more fully. But he says in verse 12, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So, in essence, he's going to be asking them rhetorically, are you really as strong as you think you are? Let's look at the Israelites as an example. Let's read again verses 1-4. through I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So Paul is using... Israel as an example of what happens to God's people when they become overconfident. And he lists first five spiritual privileges that the people of Israel enjoyed and relates them to the privileges that the Corinthians enjoyed. So this is Paul's foundation for uh, what we will really be digging into even more next week as he begins to talk about idolatry. But first we must see what Paul has laid as an example. So these five spiritual privileges that the people of Israel enjoyed. First, we read that they were all under the cloud in verse 1. What Paul is referencing here, and you may have already figured it out, is what we read in the book of Exodus. And Paul uses the exodus of the Israelites and their wanderings in the desert to illustrate his point here. So we read in Exodus chapter 13, beginning in verse 17, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night." The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from them before the people. So they were under this cloud as they traveled. Who, very important here, who does Paul say was under the cloud? He says, our fathers were all under the cloud. And that will become very important here as we move along. Our fathers were all under the cloud. Everyone who left on this exodus was under the cloud. The Israelites who left Egypt, the forefathers to the Jews and the Gentile Christians in Corinth and to Christians today. 
So we see continuity here between Israel, God's people Israel, and the church. He's calling them our forefathers. So we are all God's people. And so we see the Old Testament community of faith, the Israelites. In essence, the Old Testament church. They were no more and no less the people of God than we are today. And so he says, our fathers were set free, protected by God's divine provision. They had a cloud in the wilderness that followed along with them. We, we read of rejoicing of this cloud in the book of Psalms, Psalm 104, verse 39. Excuse me, 20. Uh, I wrote down the wrong reference. (laughs) I don't know what it is. Anyway, (laughs) they rejoice in the Lord's uh, provision, His protection with the cloud in the wilderness. So we see that God provided fire by night in the cold desert. And if you've ever been in the desert... We think desert, we think very hot, but at night is very cold. God provided fire by night and shade by day in the blistering sun from the cloud that went before them and went over them. And so by this cloud, God guided Israel through the desert. Imagine you've just left Egypt after 430 years in captivity, never been anywhere else. What's the question you're going to ask? Where do we go? (laughs) We don't have any idea where to go. But God guided them by this cloud. It was the literal presence of God with His people in the wilderness. So the first privilege the people of Israel enjoyed was that they were all under the cloud. Also in verse 1, we see, secondly, that they all passed through the sea. We all remember this from Sunday school classes growing up, right? God used Moses, parted the waters of the Red Sea, and all of Israel crossed through on a new highway, dry land. And so they look to their right and they look to their left and they see walls of water built up on both sides, and they walk through to the other side on dry land. And all of Israel made it through to the other side, protected over the top by this cloud. So imagine this cloud, the presence of God over the top of them, and walls of water on both sides. And meanwhile, the Egyptians are pursuing them from behind. And the Word says they became confused and they got out into the middle of the water as it was still parted and their chariot wheels were clogged and they tried to turn back and God says, Moses, stretch out your hand and He stretches out His hand and all of the waters come collapsing back down. 
And in Exodus 14.28 says, Not one of them remained. So we see the Israelites make it through. And the Egyptians follow and God destroys them all. Remember, they were 430 years in Egyptian slavery under harsh conditions, very difficult circumstances, evil pharaohs. And there's, there's all kinds of ideas and estimates about how many Israelites left Egypt. But you think in 430 years, there's quite a population that has grown. I believe estimates are most accurate around two to three and a half million people leaving Egypt. So imagine, even very conservatively, two million people leaving into the desert and all crossing through the parted sea onto the other side. They were under the leadership of Moses, following this cloud by day, eventually running into the Red Sea. So they get to the Red Sea. What do we do now? No big deal. Part the waters, walk across, untouched. Egypt follows, Egypt dies. Israel is on their merry way. God is very, very faithful to His people. And so they all pass through the sea without problem. The third privilege or blessing that we see in verse 2 is that they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So Paul is now linking this past experience with the present. He's not making a reference here to the actual act of baptism with water. We think that would be easy to do. They're in the middle of the sea. But remember, they were on dry land. We need to think more in terms of what baptism represents. What it is as opposed to how it's administered is what we need to think of here. And I think a good uh, description of what that is is in our, uh, our Baptist uh, catechism, question 97 which is taken from chapter 29 of our London Baptist Confession of Faith. And I will say that it is nearly identical to the Westminster's Conf Westminster Confession uh, definition of baptism, interestingly. So, question 97, what is baptism? Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament instituted by Jesus Christ to be unto the party baptized a sign of his fellowship with him in His death, burial, and resurrection, of His being engrafted into Him, of remission of sins, and of His giving up Himself unto God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in the newness of life. So baptism is this outward indication of our identification with Christ Jesus. United unto Christ as believers who have been regenerated, who have been given the newness of life in Christ Jesus. So a public declaration then of, I am identifying my life in union with Jesus Christ. So now as Christians, we are baptized spiritually into Christ 
in a unique and beautiful way. We are identified with Christ. We are one with Him. Every other Christian is one with Him. And therefore, we are one with one another. So we are identified together in corporate spiritual community under the headship of Christ. And so we see the same thing going on here than they're following under the headship of Moses. They are identifying with Moses in his headship as he leads them. Notice in this passage that Paul uses the word all five different times. He really wants to emphasize all. Verse 1, we see it twice. In verses 2, 3, and 4, we see them each one time. They are all coming out of Egypt. They are all under the cloud. They, are, they have all passed through the sea. So we see this corporate spiritual community of believers. They all identified with whom? They all identified with Moses. They follow his headship. He was their leader. This is Paul's point here. Entry into the church for the Christian is identification with Christ through baptism. Entry into the assembly of the wilderness was identification with Moses as their representative head. You see the comparison. So just as God's people became a nation with Moses as its leader, so today God's people are incorporated into Christ who is our spiritual head. And notice in this, he says they were baptized in Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So by means of the cloud and the sea, God separates to himself a people, a physical representation of a spiritual reality. Does that sound familiar? It's the language we use when we talk of baptism, right? So God is beginning a new nation. Likewise, Christian baptism is the beginning of new life in Christ Jesus. The fourth spiritual privilege or blessing we see in verse 3, they all ate the same spiritual food. In Exodus chapter 16, we read that God led the Israelites to the desert and supplied them with bread from heaven called manna. And I think the translation, it's, it's funny to me, literally manna means, what is it? <laughs> Imagine you come out your tent one morning and there's bread scattered all throughout the land for you to eat. What are you going to say? What is it? <laughs> the Lord provided every morning except for the Sabbath. God caused manna to cover the ground and it kept Israel alive until they crossed the Jordan River 40 years later. Why is Paul calling it spiritual food? Because they were literally partaking of this. It was their sustenance. But why does he call it spiritual food? He's not talking about the essence. He's talking about the source of that food. Where is it coming from? From where did it arrive? It arrived from heaven. God gave them their food literally. So it's spiritual food because the source of that food is the Spirit of God Himself. 
So they were all sustained with food and nourishment and with spiritual food because it was food that came from God. It was given from heaven. Remember, the Lord Jesus Himself draws a parallel between the manna for the Israelites and Himself as the true bread that was given from heaven. He shows that while manna sustained the Israelites for a time, He would give eternal sustenance to all who believe. So we are supplied by Christ. He Himself said of Himself, He that eats this bread shall never hunger. And fifth, like it, they all drank the same spiritual drink we see in verse 4. So like the food in the wilderness, God also provides the drink. During 40 years, God provided drinking water for the Israelites and their animals in the middle of the desert. Remember, Moses struck the rock at Mount Horeb. And then God supplies drinking water. We read that in Exodus 17. Later, Moses strikes the rock at Kadesh and again provides water. Numbers 20. Now, remember, we're talking two, three million people and their livestock here. In Psalm 78, 15, and 16, the psalmist notes, He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and cause waters to flow down like rivers. So again, like the food, with drink, Jesus says of Himself this, He that drinks of this water shall never thirst. So from these five privileges that Paul has outlined, we, we see this picture that He has painted for us. We see this great blessing from the Lord. They're given the gift of being God's people, called out as part of a corporate spiritual community, identified by baptism into that community, and then sustained by God with all the necessary resources. And so we bring that back to the context of Paul's overall argument here. And he's saying, here are all the assets of liberty. This, for the Israelites, was a pretty great position to be in, right? They had all they needed in abundance. Never without. There's more here too. Paul makes an interesting statement in the second part of verse 4. He says, they drank from the rock that followed them. That rock was Christ. Now, there's a lot of speculation as to what Paul means here. Most scholars reference Jewish tradition, which said that there was this rolling rock that followed behind the people constantly as they were moving through the desert, continuously supplying them water. I don't know. But what's important is this. They, the Israelites spiritually drank of the spiritual rock that followed them. And Paul is revealing that that was Christ Jesus Himself. 
And this is wonderful on many different levels. Paul is revealing the pre-existence of Christ who followed Israel through the wilderness. He's making very clear that Jesus did not begin at His birth. Jesus always was. Likewise, we see in the Old Testament, whenever the rock is referenced, who's it referring to? Every time we see reference to the rock in the Old Testament, it is a reference to God. So Paul is identifying the deity of Christ. Christ, pre-existent Christ, is God and followed you, and protected you, and provided for you in the wilderness. So, big picture here. What sustained Israel? Was it baptism? Was it food? Was it water? No, it was Christ. The supernatural rock that did not allow Israel to perish was Christ Himself accompanying His people through the wilderness. So Paul brings all of this together to say, look, you are in the same boat. You have received the same blessings. You have the same sustaining presence of the Messiah. You've been set free into a spiritual community. You've been identified with Christ in baptism. You feed on the same spiritual food. You feed on the, you drink from the same spiritual drink. You are being sustained. You are persevering in it all by the work of Christ. And so they say, okay, Paul. Big deal. So what? We know all of this. What is your point? And then he drops verse 5 like a ton of bricks. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Oh. Oh, I see. So God was incredibly gracious. Incredibly merciful always providing, and yet they perish because of unbelief. Notice Paul there says, most of them perished. Most of them God was not pleased with. You know how many most of them are? All of them, except for two men, Joshua and Caleb. Now, contrast this. Remember I said his use of the word all five times in those first four verses is very important. Notice he says, they all received these things. They were all under the cloud. They all made it through the sea. They all received the spiritual blessings that Christ was providing for them in this time. And now He says, most of them, pretty much all of them, perished in their unbelief in the wilderness. Remember, as you read through the accounts of the Israelites in the desert, the people were embittered because God was testing them. And so what did they do? They sinned. But beneath all of that was this root problem. 
they did not believe God. They did not trust His goodness to lead and protect and provide and satisfy. And even though they saw the waters of the Red Sea parted, even though before then they saw all these plagues fall upon the Egyptians and God grant them peace to move out from that, even though they saw water provided and manna from heaven for 40 years and eventually quell that was, the Bible says, stuck in their teeth still when they perished. God is providing all of these great things to them, seeing incredible miracles, and yet they do not trust His goodness. The moment they got thirsty, their hearts were hard against God and they did not trust Him to take care of them. They cried out against Him and they said, you know what, that life in Egypt, that was better. Being a slave to the man was better. This is what Paul is hoping to prevent in the Corinthian church. And oh, how many professing Christians make a start with God. They hear that their sins can be forgiven and that they can escape hell and go to heaven and that Christ provides a righteousness that they need not work for themselves. And they say, what have I got to lose? This sounds great. I'll believe that. No problem. Sign me up. But then a week or a month or even ten years, eventually suffering comes. A season of no water in the wilderness. A weariness with manna. And subtly, over time, a growing craving for the fleeting pleasures of Egypt. Thinking back. Remembering. Justifying that it wasn't all that bad. Besides... I wasn't wandering around in the desert eating the same food every meal, never knowing when we'd make our next stop. Not exactly knowing where we're going. Numbers 11, 5 and 6 records the words of the Israelites. They said, We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic, but now our appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna. Okay, first off, if your diet is fish and cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic... I'm just going to say we're probably not hanging out together because you probably stink. (laughs) But this is what they were longing for. This is what they wanted. They had this manna, this bread provided for them from heaven day in, day out, and they got tired of it. They got tired of it and they looked at this and said, this is what we want. This is what we want to turn back to. Okay, but look, this is a terrifying condition to be in. Think of this in terms of us today. To find yourself no longer interested in Christ and His Word and prayer and worship and missions and living for the glory of God. And to find all the fleeting pleasures of this world more attractive than the things of God. And it happens. It happens subtly, but it happens. 
Because eventually things creep in and my time is more valuable spent over here. My desires are a little bit stronger over here. And then over time, well, I'll, I'll miss the gathering of the saints this week. It's not that big of a deal just every now and then. And then one becomes two, becomes three. Because after all, I have other things in my busy life going on. I have to work a little more, to make a little more, to get a little more. And so we put off and we put off and we put off and then eventually you show up one Sunday and get a visitor's card. (laughs) Why? Because we have put it in our hearts in time that these things are not as desirable as they once were. We get tired of it. We get sick of it. But here's the truth of the Christian life. It is a long walk in the same direction. It is a very long walk to us in the very same direction. It's the story of the pilgrim's progress, is it not? We continue on and on and on until we reach that great heavenly city. But if this is your situation this morning, then I plead with you to listen to the Holy Spirit speaking through this text. Give heed to the Word of God. Do not harden your heart against God. Wake up to the deceitfulness of sin in your life. Plead with Jesus to give you a repentant heart and a desire to turn your affections on to Him. What is it that makes one look at an example like the Israelites? What is it to be like the Corinthians and to look at a situation and say, that's not going to happen to me. I'm fine. I'm okay. It's spiritual pride. This perceived maturity that we've arrived. It's laziness in the fight against sin. We find comfort in our transgressions. And we just simply sin and remind ourselves, oh, well, I'm under the grace of God. No big deal. We continuously tell ourselves, I'm free to do this. It's permissible. But I fail to ask, is it profitable? And all of this combines and comes together in a misunderstanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because eventually we get to a place where we see blessings in our life and we begin to think that we actually deserve those things. And so we continue on and we do things and we say, I'm doing this for God. I'm giving to God. I'm serving for God. And so all of a sudden when suffering comes, God's in our debt. Where's the blessing? We don't have the mind of Job. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Shall we receive good from God and not also receive evil? And so we put God in our debt because we begin to think we deserve His grace. And so we pretend that we're not as bad as we really are. 
And then we put on a show before the Lord, striving in our own self-righteousness, seeking to obtain our salvation through works. And then for many, and dare I say for many in here, as soon as it gets tough, you bounce. And then you're left dead in the wilderness because of unbelief, because of unrepentance, because of a lack of trust in God that He is providing. He is good. He is gracious. He is merciful. And He will persevere with you to the very, very end. And so I'm simply going to end with the words of Paul in verse 6. What does all of this mean? He says, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Let's pray. Father, we are very grateful that You give us Your Word that You give us examples in Your Word that we not desire evil. Father, I pray that You help us all to be faithful in our long walk in the same direction. You help us all, Lord, to be faithful as we seek to make progress in this Christian life You help us to not grow weary with the means of grace that You have given to us. That we not grow weary of all that You have provided. That we not grow weary in this life. But that we run seeking to win the prize. Seeking to be crowned with an imperishable wreath. Father, help us to persevere. Help us to be strong that we not be overthrown in the wilderness. Help us, O Lord, to be satisfied in Christ Jesus forevermore. That we not turn our hearts and our eyes and our affections to Egypt. But that we faithfully persevere in our walk toward the promised land. That You sustain us. That You help us. That You continue to provide shade in the blistering sun and heat in the cold night that You give us of the spiritual food and spiritual drink. That You continue to provide the rock who is Jesus Christ that we not stumble, but that we stand firm. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the conviction that Your Word brings. I pray that You help us all to consider our hearts, to consider the example You have given us through the Apostle Paul, lest we fall. Lord, thank You. pray in Jesus' name. Amen.